Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is the Jim Rutt Show. Today's guest is Dave Snowden. Hi, Jim. Good to be with you. Dave is founder and chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge. His work is international in nature and covers government and industry, looking at complex issues related to strategy, organizational design, and decision-making. He has pioneered a science-based approach drawing on anthropology, neuroscience, and complex adaptive systems theory. He's a popular and passionate keynote speaker on a range of subjects. This is my favorite part. According to his documentation, he is well-known for his pragmatic cynicism and iconoclastic style. I like that. Uh, my assistants once added to the end of my mini bio, and he has a delightful potty mouth. I like people who stand out a little bit from the drab corporate norm. Uh, Dave is also affiliated with the University of Pretoria, Hong Kong Polytechnic University, and the University of Warwick. His various other awards and publications too numerous to enumerate. You should look him up online. He's probably best known as the inventor of the Cunovan framework, spelled C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. Until I did my research uh, for this podcast, I always pronounced it something like Kinefin. Dave, how do we actually say that? It's Kinevin. It's Welsh. It's phonetic, but we have a different alphabet. Kinevin. I like it. Okay. Uh, Previously, you were at IBM doing knowledge management, which I remember back in the day in the 1990s as a senior technology executive. It was pretty much an overpriced shit show sold to dumb companies by slickster consultants. Uh, What did you learn from that that led you to uh, Kinevin? Oh, it goes back a way way then. I think what you actually saw, and obviously your experience, was people who focused on technology. So there were two main schools of thought around then. One was it was all about codification and dumping stuff into databases. And the other group, which was myself, Prusak and the like, basically argued decision support was a lot more complex than that. You had to take into account cognitive neuroscience. You had to take into account the way people made decisions. So that was kind of like where we were. Um, And that fairly soon morphed into work on narrative and complexity theory, and then that got me heavily involved in DARPA programs uh, before and after 9-11, looking at weak signal detection and supporting decision-making in complex policy environments. So I think you may have had some bad experiences there, and you may be spending too much time with the top six consultants rather than people who understand the subject. Yeah, fortunately, I never got gulled into doing such projects, but I know lots of my uh, contemporaries who did. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, the uh, tech publications of the year were full of, you know, the miracles of uh, knowledge management. And as you say, it was all uh, very naive attempts to overcodify what is nothing like an easily codified process, uh, which actually brings me to another one of my comments. I saw in your original Harvard Business Review article, you talk about what I've called naive Newtonianism. People who never get beyond the 13-year-old nerd's belief that with all of the data about position and velocity of everything in the universe, we could predict the future. I certainly saw that again and again in corporate America, and a lack of knowledge of even basic concepts such as deterministic chaos. Uh, What's it like out there today in the world of business and government? You haven't seen much difference. I 
many people are still taking a linear approach to causality. And to be honest, a lot of the systems thinkers guys do as well. So the assumption is you can, if you get the input right, you can define the output or that you should be able to forecast or backcast to a future state. I think the work we've done, which is primarily based on complexity theory, uh, which is different from deterministic chaos. Yeah, um, Complexity theory in human systems is sometimes known as the science of essential uncertainty in which you can understand the present and you can map the coherent pathways from the present, but you can't define an outcome. Indeed. Uh, you know, as a complexity science guy myself, uh, I'm very, uh, very clear about the distinction. I mentioned deterministic chaos because I call that the baby first step. You know, once somebody understands that deterministic chaos is real, they ought to throw out their naive Newtonianism. You know, it's amazing today to me that today people could still hang on to it uh, in positions of authority, yet they clearly do. I think there's areas where it still applies. I mean, the, the point about the Canavian framework is to say that human beings have learned, for example, in traffic management or operating theatres, to create highly predictable Newtonian systems. And there's nothing wrong with them, provided we don't think they're universal. I think deterministic chaos is not necessarily the best next step because it tends people to think that they can use agent-based models or simulation or AI, and they're really not dealing with highly interconnected systems. Um, I prefer to get people into a fundamental distinction between complicated and complex, between systems where you can define a future state and systems where you can only understand the present and then worry about the other stuff later. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. That's actually going to be the heart of what I'm going to be uh, asking you about. But before we go there, uh, complexity science clearly informs your work. How did you come to get exposed to the complexity literature? You know, I've seen references in your essays to Stuart uh, Kaufman, Perigogine. Who else uh, was an influence on you from the complexity science uh, school? Brian Arthur, um, to some extent, people like Ralph Stacey were among the early ones to popularize it. Um, Alicia Gerardo in particular, um, and her sort of work. And then a whole range of material um, in sort of essay and other format. I think the unique thing I did was to combine it with cognitive neuroscience and, and basically say that human beings aren't ants. So I think quite early on, and I remember a big debate with Walter Freeman and Stu Kaufman and Brian Arthur over dinner in San Jose many years ago. And I think what all of us were saying is the study of complexity in human systems is different from the study of complexity in termites' nests. And that requires us to take a more transdisciplinary approach. So at that point, you're talking about people like Freeman for decision-making, you know, you're talking about Chalmers. There's a whole body of academic and other influences. Uh, Chalmers, you mean David Chalmers, the philosopher? Slight confusion there. I'm talking about David Chandler. Oh, Chandler. Sorry. Not Chalmers. Okay. No, I am a philosopher, so the hard problem is one that complexity gives us different insights on. It's one that's hard, right? Well, nice thing about complexity is it allows mutually ontological, ontologically diverse systems to coexist. So there's a few issues like free will we can deal with. Now, Ch Chandler's, um, Jesse's latest book is on ontopolitics in the Anthropocene. So he's talking about how the sort of world we now live in is radically different in terms of the way we make decisions. And he's coming from a political science background. So I've drawn on 
you know, the biological end of anthropology, the sociological end of anthropology, a whole bunch of cognitive stuff and complexity theory. Very good. With that as a little bit of groundwork in place, uh, maybe you could dig in now and, uh, you know, really tell our audience about the Kniven, Kniven framework. Keep in mind, our audience is smart. Hey, you morons, get out of here. Uh, but most will not have a background in complexity science. So please take it slowly. Okay. So Kniven is based on a fundamental divide into three types of system, ordered systems, complex systems, and chaotic systems. And it comes from a principle that there's a phase shift between those types. It's not a gradation, it's a phase shift. And it's important here that chaos tends to be defined differently in social science from physics. So I'll run through my definitions and make sure we're using the same language. So an order system is one which has a very high level of constraint to the point where everything is predictable. So in the UK, we drive on the left. In the US, you drive on the right. Human beings have an ability to use constraints to produce predictability. And the, you know, the drive on the left, drive on the right is an example of what Kinevin is called an obvious approach to order. I.e. the relationship between cause and effect is self-evident. Everybody can understand it. Everybody buys into it. So that's the domain of best practice. There's a single right way of doing things. We sense, we categorize, we respond. Uh, we have rigid constraints. The other type of order is complicated. And that's where, for experts, it may be obvious, but for the decision maker, it isn't. Um, so it's not self-evident. So you have to carry out some sort of investigation, bring in expertise. You effectively sense, analyze, respond. But there is a right answer and it can be discovered. Um, but you may discover the answer within range of possibility. You may not have to be precise, which is why we talk about that as a domain of good practice, not best practice. So, for example, a medical practitioner should be allowed a degree of um, flexibility in what decisions they make about patients. They shouldn't be forced into a single route. And that would be an example of complicated. If you over-constrain an order system, and we had a lot of this in IBM, so the expense system was so ridiculous that people found workarounds. For example, claiming for a taxi fare and using that to cover food for staff working late at night. And that was a class classic case. So if you over-constrain a system, um, which isn't naturally constrainable, sooner or later it breaks or fragments into chaos. So that's called a catastrophic fold. And the bottom of Kinevin is shown uh, as a fold. It's a reference to René Tom. So that's disastrous. If you fall into chaos accidentally, then the model is accents respond. Um, you have to recover very quickly. And you see that, for example, you know, when in whole industries collapse almost overnight because it's what Clayton Christensen called competence-induced failure. They're so good at the old paradigm, they don't see the change coming. So when the change happens, it's catastrophic. Um, a complex system, on the other hand, is one which has what are called enabling constraints. So everything is somehow or other connected with everything else, but the connections aren't fully known. And one of the concepts I created is called a dark constraint, um, a reference to dark energy in cosmology. So we can see the impact of something, but we can't actually see what's you know, where the impact is coming from. So in a complex adaptive system, the only way to understand it is to probe it, to experiment in it. But critically, you have to experiment in parallel, uh, which, by the way, gives us a significant um, conflict resolution device. One of my definitions of complexity is if the evidence supports conflicting hypotheses of action, 
and you can't resolve those hypotheses within the time frame for decision on an evidence base, then the situation is complex. So within Kinevin, you don't try and resolve it. You construct a safe-to-fail micro-experiment around each coherent hypothesis. You run them in parallel. That changes the dynamics of the space, and then the solution starts to emerge. And the final domain um, is the domain of disorder, which is the central space. And that's kind of like the state of not knowing which of the other systems you're in. And you might enter that accidentally or you might enter it deliberately. But in effect, it's a type of inauthenticity. So if your natural tendency is to bureaucracy, you're likely to impose order when it's inappropriate. Yeah, if your natural tendency is towards complexity and emergence, you may not impose order when it's appropriate and so on. So the essence of Kinevin is to basically say context is key. And it also comes from one of my drivers. I got fed up with management fads of people sort of, you know, business process re-engineering was universal, learning organization was universal. None of these were universal. They all work within a specific context. So part of the function is Kinevin is to decide what context you're in before you decide what method you use. And as such, it's been used to understand the role of religion in the Bush White House. It's been used in epidemiology. It's been used for decision-making in not-for-profits. It's been used for decision-making in companies, in the police. It's taught to anybody who wants to become a colonel or colonel level in most of the U.S. Armed Forces because that concept of contextual appropriateness of decision type um, is of increasing importance in an uncertain world. So that's a very high-level summary. Very useful. Uh, Let's maybe drill in a little bit into the distinction between just the complicated and the complex. I believe I read in one of your essays that uh, you described uh, complicated as something that could, in principle, be taken apart and put back together again, uh, while complex, uh, that could never be true. Yeah, the complicated system is the sum of its parts. You can solve problems by breaking things down and solving them separately. In a complex system, the properties of the whole are the result of interaction between the parts and their linkages and the constraints. In fact, in a complex system, how things connect is more important than what they are. So the properties of that emergent pattern can never be decomposed to the original parts. Gotcha. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I I thought of another distinction I thought I'd run by you and see what you'd think, is that at least in a purely complicated system, uh, one generally uh, assumes that the components of the complicated system are not antagonistically adaptive. You know, i.e., one would never have to assume that your carburetor, showing my age there with that reference, isn't going to uh, sort of uh, perversely develop better and better ways to keep the engine from running. Uh, You can assume that the carburetor is a relatively static device. It's not a strategic or adaptive element. Is that a useful distinction about the complicated world? Yeah, a car engine is, I mean, complicated systems tend to be engineered as well. You don't tend to see them so much in nature unless you get highly static constraint relationships. In a complex adaptive system, something which was beneficial one day can be something else. So, I mean, classic example of this is symbiosis. So all symbiotes actually start off as parasites, and then they co-evolve and co-adapt with their host. 
yeah, and they end, you end up as symbiotic and you're totally dependent on them. So the stomach bacteria you rely on to actually handle your digestion actually killed a lot of your ancestors off before they actually co-evolved. Yeah, of course it goes the other way, right? The, uh, the bacteria can't live without us now also. They've given up a fair big part of their genetic code so they can't uh, do the processing of uh, raw material anymore. They have to have our chemicals do it for them. So it's really a mutualism. Um, it's quite interesting if you look at Ebola at the moment, because one of the reasons it's so dangerous is not killing everybody anymore. It's starting to adapt. Aha. Yeah, when it kills everybody, it's not going to spread, right? Mm-hmm. You've got it. Another thought about complicated and complex, uh, which is talked about in circles of some of people I work with, is that in general, a complicated system will be embedded in a complex system. You know, let's take, for instance, a 1950s style command and control assembly line factory. Yeah, that's, you know, a, a high example of a complicated artifact. And yet for it to be meaningful, it has to be embedded in a marketplace of suppliers, customers, competitors, and substitutes, all who are interlocking in a coevolutionary network, which is certainly complex. Uh, one of the things I didn't see in your writings, uh, maybe I missed them, I will confess to not have read them all, but I read a fair amount, uh, was the uh, the concept of uh, complicatedness embedded in complexity. Oh, I think it, it's there if you look at it. Um, I would say it's self-evident, so I probably wouldn't point it out. Um, and any, any highly structured engineered system works within human dynamics and human interaction. Yeah. I think it is actually possible for it to be the other way around, actually, though I think complex systems can be embedded in complicated systems. You actually see that in politics. Uh, One of the dangers of the growth of populism, for example, at the moment, is it starts to create a level of constraint um, which perverts the system. Yeah, and so you effectively have micro complexity with an overarching political framework, um, which is fairly easily managed. So I think it's a, it's a little bit of both, to be honest. Key thing is to understand which type of system you're in. I'd love you uh, for you to drill down a little bit more into that example on populism and how it represents a pocket of complexity. Okay, this links in with one of the other main frameworks I invented, which is called apex predator theory. All right, it basically says when when anything gets commoditized. Um, you lose requisite variety in the system, the system becomes perverse, and that's where something new can come into play. So, for example, I'll give you an industry example and the political one. So IBM um, dominates the early history of computing because it repurposes punch card technology. That's called exaptation in biology. That gives it first mover advantage. It then doesn't see, because it dominates the industry, that hardware is becoming a commodity. And when it finally realizes it's too late, so it suffers almost catastrophic failure because all hardware is similarly priced, it's all price and quality, it's become a commodity rather than an value-of-add, and then Microsoft takes over, and that lasts for a period till software becomes a commodity. What we've seen politically is that neoliberalism effectively homogenized the left and the right politically. And the homogenization, then the people didn't feel they had a choice anymore. So the energy costs of extremists for the left and the right goes radically down. Um, and we saw the same in the Weimar Republic. If you go back to the 20s and 30s, it's scarily similar. Now, the trouble is what then happens is whichever of the new predators effectively stabilizes a new ecosystem, they're impossible to disrupt for a significant period of time. And that's the worry I've got with populism. 
Um, it's not that we ever lived in a fact-free society. It's just we used to delegate facts to experts, and now we're kind of like delegating them to populists for a change. So this is the merge between destabilization and stabilization that you see in ecosystems. Yeah, I would uh, point out, though, that uh, this breakdown of the monoculture of neoliberalism also provides an opportunity for new inventions to come forth. Uh, and to my mind, it's uh, damn time that that happens. I mean, neoliberalism, uh, I would argue, is forcing the human race on a march to the cliff of ecocide, right? And uh, we need an alternative. And uh, yes, we'll, ha- we'll have some bad uh, things erupt, uh, you know, neo-Nazis, anarchists, Antifa, etc. But doesn't the same space provide room for new theories of social operating systems? I'm going to say something negative and positive here. And remember, I was heavily into liberation theology in the 70s, so I'm definitely opposed to neoliberalism. And I probably know more about just war theory from that period than most. Yeah, I think the problem is that it's far easy for the populist right to control the system, um, particularly when you have social media, which is what we call an unbuffered feedback loop. So a friend of mine in the Mounties in Canada expressed this really well. He said it used to be that every village had an idiot um, and it didn't matter because we knew who the idiots were. But now the idiots have banded together on the Internet to legitimize idiocy and elect the president of the United States. That's my addition to his original. Yeah? The danger is that that sort of perverse feedback loop, when you can see it in the manipulation of social media, means that people have very little freedom. So the right will nearly always win on commoditization if you look at history. Now, I'm not pessimistic on this, if I look at some of the work we're doing at the moment, is, for example, to make children ethnographers to their own communities at a micro level. So we introduce human agency, which is both horizontally mediated and bottom-up mediated, into social media, and we increase the chances of empathy and human interaction. So I think there's a lot of things like that we can do, but it won't be done by people gathering together on you know, hillsides in California and talking about how life would be better if only people loved each other. It's actually going to be done by, you know, low grade, low level um, human interaction and systems which actually support that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think uh, if there are new theories on living, people have to actually start applying them, not just talk about them and certainly not just talk about them on social media. It's actually the point on global war. We're about to launch a big website sometime next week on looking at at making global warming a micro issue. Because at the moment, people are basically totally disabled by global warming. It's just too big, too problematic. We did a big project, for example, on plastics this year at festivals. That was one of a series of projects we did to make people feel they could take control of their environment and make a difference. And until people feel they've got control at a local level, international initiatives won't work. So I think what we're trying to do is to use social media, but critically with human mediation, not algorithmic mediation, to actually change the nature of human interaction at a micro community level and start to get rid of the of the grandiose schemes and grandiose ideas. And I think that's the solution to the growth of populism. Although sometimes the grandiose ideas work, right? Uh, you know, one of the things I'm following uh, is the Extinction Rebellion over in the UK. Uh, in fact, uh, I have predicted slash suggested suggested that the Extinction Rebellion folks uh, adopt the tactic, accept the tactic from Hong Kong of closing down airports, right? Uh, Do that on a worldwide basis and you'd suddenly get people's attention in a major way. Yeah, and I think, but you see, I mean, mean, we've actually got a project going with those guys, all right? Um, 
they're, they're, they're dealing with things at a local level still, right? And they're, they're basically arising. If they get too serious, the state will start to move on. I mean, Hong Kong is really worrying at the moment. I mean, the, the day the Chinese move the troop carriers over the border, it's all over. And one of these days, they may well do that. Might be over for China, though. You know, they, as we both know, in a complex system, it is very difficult uh, to project very far out. Possibly. But at, at the moment, China's strategy is to control natural resources and to give in when they need to give in. So I need to be careful here because I'm working on some projects on this. And they're under NDAs, all right? I think there are some... If you actually look at the history of humanity, you have periods of tyrannical control before you get liberation. The problem is the planet can't afford a period of tyrannical control, which ignores global warming. We won't come out the other end this time. And so I think we've got to think about a whole range of things. The Extinction Rebellion is one, but we've got to actually create a lot more things as well. Okay, let me jump back again. I know uh, because this is perhaps where my interest in complex systems originate, I truly try to get to engage you on this, is the idea of complicated entities embedded in complex seas. Uh, I first discovered uh, complex systems thinking, uh, looked at my Amazon log, it appears to be 1996 when I was at Thomson Corporation, now Thomson Reuters, uh, and I relatively quickly developed from uh, complexity thinking uh, the idea of using coevolutionary fitness landscapes and coevolutionary is the key uh, for M&A. We did like 80 acquisitions a year, mostly tactical ones, but regularly big ones up to, you know, three and a half billion dollars. And I found it extraordinarily useful to think of I didn't have the complicated, complex language at the time, but the idea of an entity like Thomson, now Thomson Reuters, uh, operating in a sea of complexity, of which it had by no means uh, great control, but it did have the ability to uh, start to understand to some degree the nature of this complex regime and outcompete its major peer competitors by understanding that it was living in a co-evolutionary fitness landscape rather than in some static game, which its competitors seemed to think it was doing. Yeah, and, and we, we use fitness landscapes extensively, but I think the thing we developed and pioneered is to get human metadata on the raw data rather than just have algorithmic metadata. So, for example, one of the projects we did in Pakistan, we pulled in 50,000 self-interpreted micro-narratives within a week. And from that, we were able to draw fitness landscapes which showed underlying cultural attitudes and beliefs. And we still do a lot of that work. Yeah. If we're looking at merger these days, for example, we're often mapping the culture of the two organizations to see where it's in common or where it's in overlap. And we're doing a lot of that work in terms of distributed decision support. So you present a complex infographic, say, to 3,000 employees. They all self-interpret within the same hour. And we draw a fitness landscape which shows dominant views but critically shows outlier views. So from an executive point of view, you go and hunt down the outliers um, because those are the people who are thinking differently about the problem. So I think, you know, fitness landscapes have come on away. We, you know, we almost call them narrative landscapes. Yeah. Um, and we're doing a huge amount of work to generate those in larger and larger volumes with more and more data. And the work we're doing on children, which is the ambition, we've done this now in Wales, Colombia, Malmo, Singapore, and three or four pilot projects in the Middle East, is I want every 16-year-old in every school in the world to become a journalist to their own communities on a weekly or monthly basis. So we create a human interpretation of people's day-to-day -day lives, which allows horizontal integration of ideas, and which informs policy.
And that to me is key because we're introducing the human metadata element into the system rather than just relying on algorithms. And we're giving people agency in their own conditions. Very interesting. Uh, and that's certainly a relatively unique approach. At least I'm not familiar with other people doing it at anything like the scale that you are. In fact, later I'm going to drill down into your sense maker uh, uh, software and methods uh, where we'll get into that more deeply. Uh, but before we go there, uh, what about other tools for exploring the complex realm? You know, one that's popular in complexity science is, uh, you mentioned it earlier, uh, it sounded like with little disdain, uh, agent-based modeling and other forms of simulation with stochasticity. I think they're very useful provided you've got single agency and you've got rules. The trouble is most human systems are dealing with multiple identities and pattern-based, not rule-based decision. So I think simulation is powerful, but you tend to get the confusion of simulation with prediction, like their predecessors confuse correlation with causation. And some of the AI people are now actually arguing that correlation is causation, which is deeply worrying. Yeah. So I think they're useful tools, but... Um, Murray Gell-Mann famously said, and it was interesting, I turned up at a European complexity conference, and they said, would I give a keynote on why you couldn't uh, use agent-based modelings in human systems? Yeah. So I agreed to do it, but I didn't know everybody in the audience just produced agent-based modelling. So it was a bit like Daniel going into the lion's den. Right? Uh, but I got backed up by the other keynote, who was Murray Gell-Mann, and he famously said that the only valid model of a human system is the system itself. So I think you can use agent-based modeling to understand aspects of a system and to give you insight and clues, but it doesn't provide the sort of predictive element that people claim for it. And it's quite interesting. A lot of the simulations are very good historically, but they've been very problematic in terms of foresight. And I would strongly agree with you there. And this is something when I talk to people about agent-based modeling in social systems is that they should never take any given trajectory of the system as an exemplar for prediction. However, uh, one of the things that I do find very interesting uh, is that the statistics on the ensemble of trajectories is very interesting, right? It tells you whether you're in a Gaussian space or a uh, fat-tailed space, you know, what uh, Nassim Talib would call extremistan or mediocristan. And there, uh, agent-based models uh, can be very, very powerful. Powerful. And, you know, it's clear that we have to manage in uh, Gaussian distributed spaces very differently than we do in fat tail spaces. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I use a Gaussian Pareto distinction in terms of what we call the trigger from anticipation to anticipatory triggers. Yeah. So if you're in a Pareto world, the best you can do is trigger human beings to a heightened state of alert. Yeah when they need to look at something. And that's what we did on counterterrorism for DARPA. So you can't actually predict or model a terrorist outrage, but you can use AI to trigger human beings to a heightened state of alert when a terrorist outrage is more likely. And we're currently moving that technology across intact to actually create a trigger when the plausibility of abuse in an elderly care home is high. So that's called switch to anticipatory triggers. So I think the Pareto Gaussian, when I spend a lot of time trying to explain that to executives, we're not helped by Talib on this, by the way. I think Talib has blocked more people with more Nobel Prizes than anybody else. He calls me a fucking idiot. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I'm honoured to be blocked by Taleb because he's got this very narrow perspective in which, you know, he's almost like a demonic Old Testament preacher. And he would take that as a compliment, by the way, right? I know he would. Um, I don't because I actually think the world needs people who are thinking differently to collaborate and talk with each other and recognize differences rather than try and create one, one method is unique. So at the moment, as far as I'm concerned, Taleb is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Um, you've got people like Didier at University of Zurich who are actually much better in that field. So Taleb's got into the producing a popular book every 18 months trick, and there's too many people doing that in management science. And even worse, uh, actually, uh, and I do like some of his thinking. It's very important, particularly from his earliest book, Fooled by Randomness. The earliest book is brilliant. I tell everyone, read that, don't read the rest. Worse than become, putting out a popular book every 18 months, he's now a 50 tweets a day Twitter personality, and the, the attractor for that particular role is not good. He's also got several fake personalities which jump on you if you dare criticize him. It's quite, it's quite amusing, really. And he also has some uh, uh, non-fake, but uh, sort of pack dog uh, people that follow him along. Yeah, I like the fattest fat Tony. That's obviously him, right? Uh, for instance, that's uh, quite interesting. Uh, another uh, item I'd like to hop into on something that I saw in some of your writings is the chaotic regime. I think you gave 9-11 as an example. Briefly. And Okay, good. I think there were an agreement there because I would say it was very briefly a chaotic state, but we learned very, very quickly, for instance, instance, that we were not going to have, uh, maybe we, we quickly learned that 10,000 terrorists had not missed our screen, right? That maybe there was 20 or maybe there was 100. Uh, and so this was not a existential risk to the American way of life, despite the fact that that narrative was sold politically, which took us down a bunch of bad roads. Yeah, and I think there were some fundamental mistakes made. If you contrast 9-11, and I spent a lot of my time studying this, including time with Clinton's original Al-Qaeda team on the DARPA programs, is kind of like part of the problem was that there was no need to down all the aircraft. Um, That caused an economic disaster. Um, If you actually look at the contrast with 7-7, because Britain has had the Blitz and multiple terrorist bombings, everybody went on the underground the next day to make a point. Yeah. And that, that's one of the ways, I mean, I've done a lot of work on this and it's almost like another podcast to talk about how you reverse Ashby's law by using your own population to give you asymmetric advantage against terrorism. But coming back to the chaos points, I mean, chaos was temporarily there and I think chaos is always temporary and that's where people get it wrong. Um, so it's a state of the absence of constraints. Now, ironically, in physics, that's a low energy gradient. In human systems, it's a high energy gradient. Because human systems are open, so constraints happen very quickly and very naturally. So some of the stuff we do on distributed decision support, for example, is to deliberately remove constraints, but that takes a lot of energy to do it, so that we can actually get the sort of statistical framework framing that you can get with fitness landscapes, for example. Yeah. So chaos is temporary, it's not permanent. You don't want to fall into it, you want to enter it deliberately. Most of the time we're dealing with gradations of complexity. Now, do you have some guidance? So let's take go back to the 9-11 example, and there'll be other examples. Uh, I suspect, for instance, that the next uh, big financial re- reverse will be bigger than 2008, which gonna, is going to look chaotic for a while. Uh, do you have any guidance for uh, executives, business decision makers, uh, etc., uh, for how to deal with a truly deeply chaotic system. Create constraints. I mean, that, that's where we're building distributed decision support systems. We just ran one on Korea, which I can't talk about too much, right? 
It's where you present an ambiguous assessment of the situation literally to five or 6,000 people who interpret it and you look at the fitness landscapes within seconds and you look at dominant patterns and minority patterns so you can find new ways of creating constraint for new forms of exit. But that requires companies to build those systems before the crisis comes. And I, I say you, you build networks for ordinary purpose you can activate for extraordinary need. Yeah, very interesting. Could you uh, maybe retrofit that to 9-11? What could society have had in place uh, to deal with something like 9-11? Well, first of all, they could have actually not played politics. I mean, there was actually a presidential order which Gore would have signed possibly to have F-14s in permanent patrol above Washington, New York. So we, we kind of like knew the strategy on 9-11. We just didn't know when, but it was considered democratic paranoia about Al-Qaeda, if you go back to the time. So I think one of the issues is we need more continuity on civil issues and less political influence on civil issues in that respect. But distributed networks of people from multiple backgrounds is key. I mean, there was a big row on this when the 9-11 report came out. I mean, I went on the hill with Dennis and other people around it. And I remember we said the last thing you should do is to combine the agencies because it will reduce um, cognitive diversity in the system. What you need is the ability to summarize agency perspectives and non-agency perspectives in real time, not through consultation. And that's kind of like where we're building systems. But to do that, you have to have people habituated to the use of the system so when the crisis comes, you can get the fitness landscapes out more or less instantly. Hmm, that's good. Uh, you probably know of the no free lunch theorem uh, of Dave Wolpert from Santa Fe Institute, which basically says there's no possibility of one best search algorithm that you always have to understand the domain you're in uh, to craft a search algorithm. This strikes me as uh, you know, a very good lesson on how to think about you know, a chaotic regime. It does. We, we use multiple human agents as well as algorithms. And that's key. Humans understand abstractions. Computers find that very difficult. I mean, art comes before language in human evolution. And we think the evolutionary function of art was to allow us to see novel or unexpected connections, but also to assess their relative plausibilities. Yeah. So human beings are actually good in chaos. We evolved for it. Um, but you have to deploy and we evolve for collective decision making, not for individual decision making. Yeah, very good. Uh, that's very true. And still a human superpower uh, with a very large gap between what AIs can do and what humans can do. I actually think it's a permanent gap unless and yeah, you know, I did a big lecture on this recently. I said the problem is that in, in Singapore, the problem at the moment is they may exceed us in intelligence because we're currently working on meeting them halfway. <laughs> we're reducing human intelligence to rigid processes and structured approaches and you know ai will always be better at that than humans and uh, you know i do a fair amount of work in the ai space and uh, i do think it's quite likely though not certain that eventually within 50 years say uh, we'll have artificial general intelligences which will have uh, those same uh, broad integrative capabilities that humans do and then that's when things get very interesting yeah and unless you can build in you got to build in scent and you got to build in abstraction and i don't see any sign of that at the moment not in the deep learning world and this is something that uh, i come back to again and again in my talks is that uh, much of the public has now been convinced that artificial intelligence 
intelligence basically equals deep learning. And deep learning is rather just one school of AI, currently the dominant one, uh, but there are others. You know, symbolic AI still exists. For instance, guys like Gary Marcus, guys like Ben Gertzel, uh, Josh Tenenbaum at MIT. Uh, there are uh, many people still working on much more abstract and tractable and transparent approaches to AI. And I believe that they, in the end, are likely to go further than the deep learning guys. I think they'll go further. I think key and some of our work at the moment is is building, is actually focusing on building the training data sets, which I know is a type of deep learning, but it's also linked some of the symbolic stuff. And I think people don't pay enough attention to that. Yeah, or they work with limited sets. But I think this is a developing field. But silicon ultimately isn't carbon when it comes down to it. Yeah, the other, the other thing, of course, that some of my own actual experimental work is on is that uh, humans learn way faster than uh, computers do today, right? A uh, you know, to learn to play uh, Go well took, you know, hundreds of billions of games played. Uh, you know, the very top chess players probably only played 30,000 games in his whole life. You could wipe out the Google Go player simply by changing the rule. It would take too long to accommodate, whereas a human being would accommodate instantly. Yep, you could change the size of the board, right? Uh, classically, uh, humans play Go on different size boards, but AlphaGo had to be trained on one specific size board. And if you change the board size, even by uh, one, it uh, its capabilities fell way off. You see, I think that comes back to the fact humans are analog, not digital. It comes back to the, I mean, too few AI people. And there's, there's three things AI people need at the moment. One is they should be trained in ethics. We shouldn't be allowing anybody to be a software engineer these days without basic training in ethics from quite a young age because they're scary. The other one is aesthetics. If you don't understand the role of aesthetics in human evolution, you're never going to get an AI system which really helps too much. Aesthetics, that's interesting. I have never heard that. Uh, ethics, of course, lots of discussion about how that should become mandatory and more deeply uh, baked in. I'd love to hear you say more about why you think aesthetics is important. Because aesthetics is about abstractions. So in, as I say, music and art come before language and human evolution. So human language evolves from abstractions. And the evolutionary argument for this is it allows rapid exaptive thinking. So the ability to rapidly repurpose things um, is actually comes from abstraction. So, and it's also a matter of you get higher empathy in abstraction than you do in the material. Things like parable form stories, for example, provide better moral guidance than values or principles, um, partly because they define the negative, not the positive. So an ability to understand or appreciate beauty is actually going to make you a much more effective decision maker as a human um, than if you just confine yourself to the material. I wonder if aesthetics is a subset of a broader uh, category of abstraction and metaphor. You know, as we know from the work of Lakoff and others, uh, our language and our thinking is way more metaphorical than we often realize. It is, and Deakin's symbolic species finally killed Chomsky's view, views of language off, thank God. One of my favorite books. I love that. Deacon Symbolic uh, Species. Not, not as well appreciated as it should be, people. Go out and read that book. Pity about the subsequent books where he partly plagiarized other people's stuff, all right? But Symbolic Species is brilliant. Yeah, the second the book after was unfortunately uh, uh, just not uh, to my taste at all. You can read all the material in two other books. I can give you the references, all right? Uh, I'm not going to bother because I didn't even like it in, the for in that form, uh, to tell you the truth. 
Okay, but I think that that's the important one. If you and you look, you then get at the the modern finding in epigenetics and the, the way we discover. We now know that Lacanianism is right, so we know the mechanism for cultural inheritance within a single generation. Yeah, and all of that we need people designing tools for. There's a thing in archaeology called material engagement theory, which has identified the way in which tools have actually triggered significant um, cognitive and physical changes in humans. The danger is if we continue down our current route on AI, we're actually going to reduce human intelligence and capability rather than augment it. We probably already are, right? In certainly many areas. Yeah, the autism plague in the States is a good example of that. Yeah. And as I say, you know, if I'm being really satirical on this, and I know this is unfair, but I'll make the extreme point. Uh, most of our modern AI work has been done by people who live on the West Coast who are misogynist programmers who take Anne Rand seriously after puberty. Yeah, and that's quite scary when you start to think about it. And also a disproportionate number, not a majority, but way higher than in the general population are on the autistic spectrum as well. Yeah, they are. And, and we're increasing that. Sometimes when I'm being as cynical as I can be, well, not quite as cynical as I can be, because I can be very cynical. Uh, my description of the West Coast culture, where it's trending to, is armies of autistics led by psychopaths. Yeah, and uh, that's why you need aesthetics as well as ethics. Ethics can be aimed. Yeah, I think you know, as basics on evolutionary biology, we should be teaching engineers. Yes, and I think fortunately, because of the congruence between deep neural uh, learning nets and biology, there is actually a significant increase in learning about biology. And philosophy of mind is coming back together with cognitive neuroscience, but it's also scary. I mean, I won't say I've been working with one medical group on epidemiology in the States. And I'm not allowed to mention evolution because it's a controversial theory. Oh, dear. And there's a very high percentage of young Earth creationists in the IT community. And because a lot of them actually think we're in a simulation and they don't worry about global warming because they think we can reboot it. And I'm not joking. They genuinely think that. I believe there's more uh, simulationists than there are uh, young Earthers in the technology world. Yeah, but there's very little difference between the two, to be honest. Mm, well, that would that'd be a whole other podcast, I'd have to say, because I've got very nuanced theories about the simulation hypothesis in general, because I, of my metaphysical, my minimalist metaphysical program, I reject it. However, we can't reject it as logically impossible, unfortunately. Uh, oh, that's an I mean, I, I, as a confirmed realist and, and a good Catholic, I'm going to argue against you on that one. Yeah, well, I'm all, that's why I say I'm a metaphysical minimalist of the naive realist variety. So I think we probably uh, touch grounds there. But on the other hand, uh, I also look at low, low, low probabilities and can't quite rule it out. I, on the other hand, believe you can rule out Bostrom, etc., who say it's almost certain we're in a simulation, right? I think that's uh, total and uh, pernicious horseshit. And as you say, leads people to think about some very bad things. We've talked about some very esoteric things here. This has been a very interesting and rich discussion. I'd like to turn it a little bit back towards the more hands-on and practical. Uh, some of our audience are uh, managers and executives and entrepreneurs. What could you say about some takeaways for people who are in uh, management positions about different management styles and ways of dealing with their organization uh, that your Kinevin-oriented approach might suggest? Okay, two things. One is the value of Kinevin is it basically says there isn't one style of leadership. 
So servant leadership doesn't work universally. Draconian leadership works in some contexts. So you need to be multiple faceted in the way that you lead and you need to distribute the leadership. The other thing is that attitudes matter more um, because attitudes are lead indicators. So I'll give the example of stuff we're currently working on cybersecurity, where we're measuring attitudes to cybersecurity, not compliance. And we do that by effectively presenting an infographic of a major cybersecurity breach. We get everybody in the workforce to interpret it in real time, including their own situational assessment and their own micro scenario about the future. And from that, we draw a fitness landscape, which identifies the attitudes of your employees to cybersecurity and allow you to nudge the system. That's called more stories like this, fewer stories like that in real time. So recognizing, and the whole point about Kinevin is different styles work in different domains and recognizing the attitudes, whether it's to security, to ethics, to customer purchasing behavior, yeah, virtually anything is more important to get the early weak signals of a dispositional state, an attitudinal state, than it is to try and imply causality or to try and define an outcome. So basically uh, expand the search space first. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's forecasting and backcasting. So forecasting predicts, projects forward. Backcasting says, what would we like to get and close the gaps? What we do is called sidecasting, which gives me wonderful visual metaphors with trout fishermen. Yeah, You cast around in the present to see what's plausible before you risk the future. Very interesting. Another theme that comes that I at least took out of uh, what I read of your work uh, is that you uh, certainly encourage dissent and diversity, uh, which I strongly agree with. In fact, uh, in corporate America, amazing, I never got thrown out of there, but my role was often bomb thrower and protector of dissenters. But at the same time, if one's trying to make an organization work, you have to manage the signal to the noise. You know, not all opinions are equal. How do you encourage dissent and diversity without being overwhelmed by crankery? I think there's two or three things. So first of all, I say we need to shift from homogeneity, which is associated with things like learning organization and most of Agile. I just believe everybody should have the same values, the same goals, and the same objectives because that destroys, that, that makes systems non-resilient, yeah? Into what I call coherent heterogeneity. So you have to have, you have to have differences which can come together in different ways. So for example, I'm Welsh. If you meet anybody from Wales, the first thing they'll ask you is, where do you come from? Because we have to establish somewhere in which we can have a fight with you. Yeah, we'll get it down to a valley eventually. Yeah, and there's those bastards in Thlenetli who cheat at rugby with the referees they bribe, all right? I'm sorry, I'm from Cardiff. But when the English come, we're Welsh. Of course, right? Now, that's a that's an example of coherent heterogeneity. Now, what we can do with the attitude mapping I mentioned earlier is we can measure the level of cognitive and behavioral diversity in your organization. And we can identify outlier groups who you should pay attention to rather than letting getting drowned up by middle management. And that's a key thing that comes out of the attitudinal mapping. Yeah, you have to maintain diversity in the system, but you have to maintain diversity, which isn't freakish. And I survived in IBM by top cover. When my top cover went, it was all over. You actually need to get around those sort of problems by providing interactions between dissonant groups. And yet there still has to be some way to sort out, you know, what is useful diversity and what is just crankery or stubbornness. Or- yeah, but that, that's what we do with, with, with the complex space. So I present a situation, I'll get everybody in the workforce to interpret it. I'll then get dominant views, but I'll get 15 or 16 clusters of outlier views. I let the clusters run a small safe to fail experiment. 
and we see what works. And, and that's a key conflict resolution device. So I have, effectively, I do what's called a shallow dive into chaos. I move into an unconstrained system um, to actually statistically map onto a landscape. Then I know which ideas are coherent enough to explore, even though they're different, and which are actually nonsense. And the test for coherence is something we do a lot of, and that's a key concept in philosophy of science. So going back to an earlier point of view, we know that most evolutionary theory is wrong because we keep discovering new things, but it is coherent to the facts, whereas young earth creationism is incoherent to the facts, so it's not worthy of exploring. So a lot of our work has been to produce objective, quantifiable measures of coherence within an organization so you know which dissonants are worth talking to and which aren't. And that's actually a relatively simple process. I would love to hear more about that in uh, thinking about operating systems of the future uh, with some collaborators of mine, some of which have been on our podcast recently. Coherence is a key concept. I'd love to hear what you can tell us about how to measure uh, coherence. Okay, so let's take my example of a of a policy situation. So you're thinking of taking over a company or moving into a new area. So you put that together as an infographic, like a Facebook news page, where you've got dissenting views, common views, yeah, the sort of thing people are used to assimilating. You present that to your whole workforce in one hour without the chance for collusion. Ask them to write a micro-situational assessment. Then we do the human metadata, which is non-gameable human interpretation, which gives us quant data from which we can draw fitness landscapes. And we finish off with a micro-scenario, how do you think this will develop? That means the minute the hour is over, we can present the executive with a fitness landscape which shows clusters of effectively coherent ideas, and then we can go to those and give them some cash to do a small experiment. So that's actually relatively simple. So you can essentially do a uh, statistical analysis on the cluster uh, statistics of the narratives. And if there isn't much clustering, then you could say your coherence is low. Uh, if it's tightly clustered around uh, a, s- a single or a small number of points, you can say it's highly coherent, maybe overly coherent. It's also very dangerous because you haven't got enough diversity. So we, we got metrics on this. Yeah, you, you want, there's a level of dissent you want to have permanently present within the organization. And think Brasso and I did before he died was to measure the degree of inefficiency a system needed in order to be effective. And do you have anything you can sort of explicate on on how one would think about what's the right amount of diversity? I suppose it's situationally dependent. That links in with apex predators. So if you've got a stable ecosystem, you don't need so much diversity. If the system is starting to destabilize, you need to increase increase diversity very quickly. Yeah, that's in uh, in evolutionary computation, which is my home academic field. Uh, that's what we call the difference between exploitation and exploration. In stable times, you want to do more exploitation. In unstable times, you must do more exploration. And then the secondary work we did, which was originally the counterterrorism work, is when do you, and this is where we produce human-mediated training data sets because we need executive buy-in, is you need to use AI to trigger when you need to switch between the two because by the time you see it normally it will be too late you say use ais to determine that could you say more about that what we do is we build training data sets based on for example multiple counter-terrorist examples in the past using fragmented observations which are available beforehand and we use those to produce uh, similar things are now happening you need to pay attention but because the executives have been involved in the construction the training data sets they actually believe it is not a black box and yeah, you know, I've been in decision support all my life. Black boxes generally don't work when there's a lot at risk politically. So traceability of and understanding the mechanism of decision making is one of the big missing things in AI at the moment. 
and we're doing a lot on that. And of course, uh, hopping back to our earlier discussion, that's where symbolic AI uh, has a very significant advantage over neural AI, right? Uh, it's not necessarily a black box. The ability to look at whatever level of detail you want on the reasoning or even have it generate uh, scripts that explain its reasoning are feasible. Well, that's not feasible, at least not yet, uh, with respect to neural AI. Yeah, I, I think I think you need the anticipatory triggers. I mean, I've, I've had these debates and I had them in Boston not so long, well, sorry, in Cambridge not so long ago. I, I still think we're not the, the AI industry is is trying to remove, is trying to reduce rather than increase human agency. We think the really fertile thing is to increase human agency, then the AI will get better. Could you give an example of that? Well, that's an example of, for example, what well, I've just given you an example where we use a whole workforce to assess the situation that creates training data sets that you can then check into AI systems. Yeah. So that's one way. The other is traceability. Um, yeah, several things like that. Okay, I'm going to hop to another concept that I believe I took out of your writings, which is that in an unordered system, causality cannot be determined. I'd like to point out there's this interesting and somewhat slippery concept of downward causality in complex systems. Bring it down to a tangible example. The chemicals in the cells of a body are highly constrained by the fact that they are evolved to live in a tightly coupled uh, package of chemical homeostasis, which has to exist on a second-by-second -second basis. And this tremendously constrains the degrees of freedom of those chemicals. So it seems to me that if one thinks about this concept of downward causality, uh, there is a very large amount of constraint that one can basically extract about any given entity within the complex system. That was the point we were making earlier, my point about populism. The danger about populism is it increases the downwards constraints and reduces freedom of action until it breaks catastrophically. So that, that means effectively the system has become ordered, not complex, because the constraint level is so high. And it's also the problem with granularity. You can't go from a chemical reaction to a human system because a human system is, is an order of magnitude greater, several orders of magnitude greater, in terms of uncertainty, linkages, constraints, and everything else. Yeah, certainly there's multiple levels of emergence between chemicals and uh, human body. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the behavior of those chemicals is very highly constrained by being part of this uh, uh, real-time chemical homeostasis, which is used to support the entity itself. And the result is actually quite powerful. It is. I mean, the chemicals restrict the way we can make decisions in the brain individually. But you can't take an aggregative approach to this. By the time you reach a human system, you've got so many micro constraints, yeah, and macro enabling constraints that the system is actually has a much higher level of unpredictability than the low level stuff. Yep, that's good. I like that. Uh, next topic, you've suggested multi-hypotheses. I didn't see any uh, reference to the limited amount of data that I read about red teams. That was always one of my favorite uh, management techniques. Uh, is, does that fit into your uh, methods at all? Yeah, I mean, some of the work we did in Singapore was to create an alternative to red teams. Part of the problem with red, if red teams are truly independent, they work. Yeah, if they came from the same cultural background, it can be problematic. So we have a technique called ritual descent, in which we'll fragment into multiple small micro red teams looking at decision making. But overall, you know, red teams had a lot of value. But you can't do it, say, just with an S2 challenge in military terms, because S2 has been part of the construction of the plan. Yeah, I've always thought there ought to be a consulting firm that all they do is do red teams for companies. Does such a thing exist? There's quite a few. I mean, we, we work with a couple. I mean, I'm doing a project this week where we're 
no, I can't say who with, right? But we're actually going to effectively red team a corporate um, purpose statement by finding multiple ways to destroy it and the way it can be perverted in practice. I'm going to really enjoy doing that. You know, once I conceptualized the concept of a red team consulting firm, I said, damn, I wish I'd taken that road in life. That might have been a shitload of fun. The other thing is, I mean, what we're doing there is I'm working with narrative experts. So if you if you understand the way narrative is constructed, um, it's fairly easy to introduce retroviruses into narrative by which people's story destroy themselves. Yeah. That gets me to my next topic, actually. Narrative. Narrative appears to be central to at least your later work. Right. Uh, could you talk about what you mean by narrative and what is its position in your work? There's a quote by Polanyi. He said, we always know more than we can say. And I extended that to say we can always say more than we can write down. So if you look at narrative in humans, all right, if you, if you want to look at what's really going on, what you want is the water cooler stories, the stories of the school gate, the stories of the checkout queue in the supermarket, because those actually determine people's attitudes rather than responses in focus groups to questionnaires or in polling, yeah, where you're asking explicit questions. So the work we do is to actually gather those day-to-day micro-narratives, but critically, we give people the power to interpret their own narratives rather than have interpreted by text search, by algorithm, or by experts, which means we can scale to very high volume very quickly. So the concept of self-interpreted, and we we tend to use the words observations as much these days, micro-observations, micro-narratives. We try and avoid the story word. Um, The key thing about narrative is it carries ambiguity with it. It's halfway house between, say, the black cab driver in London who just knows where to drive because they spent two and a half years learning every route and the map user. So the map user has got explicit data, but they can't outcompete with a taxi driver. But narrative sort of sits halfway in a halfway house between it. So, for example, some of the work we did in the US was on narrative enhanced doctrine. If you put HTML links to real stories into best practice documents, people actually have a richer context. They know more how to interpret the data. And actually, narrative-based search will give you better access to documents and so on. So that's kind of like a work is micro-narrative, micro-scenarios, mapping narratives to understand culture, but critically, self-interpretation of that narrative, not machine or expert interpretation. Uh, as I was doing my research, I uh, dug into your SenseMaker uh, software platform. And I got to tell you, your website sucks in describing it. You know, there was essentially uh, nothing that uh, gave me much of an idea what it was. Uh, but fortunately, uh, being a good Googler, I did find some great resources written elsewhere. Uh, one called Making Sense of Complexity, Using SenseMaker as a Research Tool by Dave Snowden's and some others. Uh, I don't think it's been published yet, but it's a, a, a draft available on the internet. I'd recommend that to people who want to know about SenseMaker and also a company called Vico, V-E-C-O, Inclusive Business Scan product, actually had some pretty nice descriptions from a practical perspective of how one might uh, use uh, SenseMaker. And it describes it well and in a less academic way than the Making Sense of Complexity uh, paper. Uh, So with all that said as preamble, uh, tell us about SenseMaker. Okay. Um, we know we need to improve the website, by the way. Um, we're just creating a new website with what we call pulses. So that's sort of easy entry into the field. So that's looking at cybersecurity, culture, well-being, agile. as very rapid sort of uses of SenseMaker to understand attitudes in that domain. The best way of explaining it is to think about an employee satisfaction survey. 
So we used to get these all the time in IBM and you get this question which says, does your manager consult you on a regular basis, scale of zero, not at all, 10 all the time? And you knew exactly what answer they wanted. Yeah, And it was a big annual thing. People wrote reports, consultants analyzed it, nobody knew what to do. We take a very different approach. We'll go to, say, 10% of the workforce every month and we'll ask a non-hypothesis question. So, for example, what story would you tell your best friend if they were off the job in your workplace? And then the individual, having either spoken that story, taken a picture or typed or some combination, then self-interprets that story onto a series of triangles. And one of the triangles, for example, has in this story, the manager's behavior was altruistic, assertive, analytical. So we're balancing off three positive qualities. Now, we wire people up for this. Um, what it does is it triggers a shift from what's called autonomic to novelty receptive processing, what Kahneman called from thinking fast to thinking slow. So you don't know what answer is expected of you, so it forces you to think more deeply about the subject. And if you position dots on six triangles, you've added 18 metadata points to the original narrative, and that's what we analyze. And then the original narrative gets carried with the statistical data to effectively provide an explanation of what the statistical patterns mean. And yeah, it is hard. That's what SenseMaker does. Yeah, I loved it. I actually spent about three hours uh, digging into it. And uh, particularly the triads, what you described as the triangles, I think they are actually called triads in the software. And we're not talking about Chinese organized crime here, people. We're talking about kind of a three-dimensional way of positioning your view about something in a constrained three space. Uh, struck me as extraordinarily useful and might even be a transformational tool in many domains. Uh, you know, one that came to mind is it could actually be a great replacement for political polling. Yeah, we need to be careful what we talk about here, but we've actually done some work on that. We may even create a new company for it um, because we need to keep that separate. I was thinking if one was to wanted to create a de novo political party, which somebody ought to do, uh, doing a lot of work with something like SenseMaker might be a very interesting way to find out what shared values there really are in our society. If somebody wants to approach us, we're already doing projects on that, and we're very keen to extend that work. So we're trying to find, and this is the Extinction Rebellion and other stuff. So what have people got in common? Yeah. You need the surface presentation, and that's what SenseMaker pulls out. So certainly in political use, it can be used by, for example, field workers to gather stories from people, and then people self-interpret their own stories, so you're not reliant on interpretation. What we've done in social work, for example, is social workers you know, capture stories before and after a visit, but then the people who are their clients can tell and interpret their own story. So they're not reliant on the experts to mediate it. And that was the point I was making earlier on the children's stuff. That sense maker. So if 16-year-olds act as ethnographers to their community, we gather quant data in large volume very quickly, which is almost impossible for people to manipulate, like they can manipulate Facebook and Twitter. And the other thing that I believe I read in some of the materials, if not, it comes, you know, by uh, extrapolation, is that if you use self-scoring, the turnaround can be very rapid. You know, going back to, you know, your description of those goddamn corporate surveys, right? Uh, everybody wastes uh, two hours filling the damn things out. And then the stupid ass company that the company you work for hired to do it spends three or four months tabulating the data and running some bogus statistics and management doesn't even hear about it for six months. Well, presumably using SenseMaker and self-scoring, you could have uh, the results in hours. You can have the results instantly, actually. I mean, another example is 360. 360 is a major gained issue every year. Yeah. 
it's evaluative. I mean, I set up a website at IBM where you could nominate to be somebody's third quartile responder, which HR got pissed off with me over. We, we do something different. So you're a leader, you nominate X number of people. Every time they interact with you, they record the interaction. They index it onto six triads, which have all positive leadership qualities, and then you see how they see you. And that's a real-time mechanism. And it's descriptive, not evaluative. So you can sit down with you guys and say, look, I'm all altruist, I'm all analytical assertive, very little altruism. How do I get more of this rather than the sort of evaluative thing at the end of every year? Great. And I you know, got to say, people, I uh, endorse at least in principle SenseMaker based on what I could extract out of it. And I am pretty good at understanding these kinds of complex tools. And I would love to get my hands on it at some point and use it on a real project. Give you the pulses. The, the pulses are, made, are designed to make it really easy. It's sub 3K, pre-configured, just go run them. That would be cool. So we talked uh, about what I know so far about your work up till now. Uh, what have I missed? Let's start with that. <laughs> I think uh, really the work is about how do people make better decisions. It's kind of like where I came from. That was my original thesis years back. Yeah. Um, the big stuff we're now doing, like the Children of the World Project I talked about, the work we're about to start on global warming to understand how we can make people aware of the issue at a local level. We got a big project running on understanding abuse, yeah, in partnerships and then using the narrative as a therapeutic device to hook people out of narcissistic control. So my own direction now is focused on democracy, on education, yeah, on how do we create a more humane society under conditions of control restraint. That means that a lot of the cognitive side of this is coming forward. And we, we just did this big retreat in Whistler. Last year, we created a new approach to design thinking based on complexity, which is about to launch. That was in over three retreats. This year, we're working at decisions and perception. That will come out in May. The year after that, we're looking at meaning and identity. So what I'm really doing is to take a natural science approach to social systems rather than a case-based inductive approach. And for me, that's critical. My original degree was physics and philosophy, which taught me to have a contempt for social science from two completely different disciplines, and I haven't really shaken it off since. Yeah. So using natural science to inform human polity is kind of like where we are. Sounds like you're moving away from the focus on corporate America and, or uh, world corporations and moving more into the, the social and political spheres. It's a mixture. I mean, co Cognitive Edge, we just got new investors. And so the commercial side of that is building. Yeah. And that's a big element of what goes on. And I inform that I'm the R&D hub for that now rather than the execution. <laughs> But you actually find the R&D in the big social projects has commercial application. I mean, the stuff we did on counterterrorism has huge commercial application. Yeah. But I'm more interested in creating a, what I used to say, for my grandchildren. And I thought my children, now I think I may be having to create a safer space for me. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, I used to say, oh, there's a 1% chance of a social collapse in my lifetime when I was 30, right? And now I'm 65 and I, it's 20%. And instead of having an expected life expectancy of 65 years, I have a life expectancy of 25 years. What is wrong with this story, right? Yeah, we're on, we're on the same wavelength and we're the same age. Pretty much. Now, sort of between the two, between you know, de novo work on social systems and say corporate work, there's the world of existing social science. Have you found interest in uh, practicing social scientists, say, in a university context, in your approach? 
They're starting to switch, all right? So complexity is was kind of like ignored. I think part of the problem you got with social science is a lot of them is they're, they're in very tight sort of debates, say, between modernism and postmodernism, uh, between social constructivism and critical realism. And to my mind, those, those debates are fairly meaningless. I call them horseshit. Yeah, well, I, I, I think there's some interesting things in them, but um, you've got to be careful. I think um, I, I was at a cultural evolution society thing in Edinburgh recently, yeah? And I, I, I raised um, some research outside the field of the people there. Yeah, I said, do you know Andy Clark work on extended cognition? Bang, bang, bang. And, and the lecturer said, yes, I know about that. But if it's true, it invalidates 50 years of experimental psychology. So I'm not taking it seriously. But I think that's the trouble. Social science has become highly self-referential and highly focused on paper production because you've got to produce X papers per year to get, keep tenure. And so the chance to explore new ideas, you really have to do it outside of academic life at the moment. Or have tenure. Yeah, even in tenure, they're still under huge pressure on that. Yeah. And then as you, you didn't quite say it, but I'll say it, altogether too much of social science today is politics by other means. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I wrote a blog post on this. I said, you know, natural science gives us explanation and prediction. Social science can give us explanation, but not prediction. If you actually say your social science gives you a predictive capacity, which is where most management science is, then you're a pseudoscience. And then there's a fourth alternative, which is what we do, is use natural science as a constraint on what you can do in social systems. Mm, that's uh, that's very interesting, actually. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Let's, uh, let's bring it back to the more mundane executive running a company. I teach this to senior executives. There are some basic facts we know. So we know, for example, inattentional blindness, all right? So if you give a bunch of radiologists a batch of x-rays, on one of the x-rays you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule, then 83% of radiologists won't see it, even though their eyes scan it. So a natural science approach says, right, that's the case. So we've got to find the 17%. We can't train people not to do that. We need to create systems which find the 17% before they talk to the 83%. And that's what we do when I mentioned it earlier about mass sense. Yeah, Ping something out, the whole workforce do, you find out like communities, we go talk with them. So that's an example, right? We know that in a complex adaptive system, you haven't got linear causality. Therefore, you stop talking about the future and you focus on mapping the present. So what natural science gives you is this tight focus on what's actually possible, as opposed to what most management science has been doing for the past 40 years, which is a series of fads, each of which claims to have found the solution to the problem of life, the universe and everything, each of which lasts three or four years, then dies, yeah? Because there's no scientific base to any of them. They're all fictional constructs. And indeed, if you go back and backtest them, you find most of them don't backtest at all. And people love it. It's like, I mean, Myers-Briggs, for example, is using all corporate America. It's been proved to be a pseudoscience more times than I care to imagine, but people carry on using it. Not so profitable for the consultants, right? You know, that's, uh, that's the driver, to my mind, of most of this uh, management faddishness. In fact, I generally tell people when they ask me, what do I read? I say almost anything except books about management, right? Right. I, I saw a, a Forbes article earlier on today about Agile, and Agile was the future of everything. And I basically added a comment to it, said I could have written exactly the same thing about every other management move for the last 20 years, and the author actually wrote some of them. So why should we believe this? It's another fad. It's not based in anything we know from science. 
I mean, each of these fads has some applicability. I mean, there are definitely uh, some situations where right sizing uh, was a very uh, valid strategy, but it's, you know, no free lunch theory. Made universal. There was nothing wrong with business process re-engineering until it became Six Sigma. Exactly. Right. That's, you know, that's the no free lunch theorem. There is no one answer to every problem. You have to understand your domain first. I mean, I did a program in IBM, which actually it was a three month experiment. We proved astrology was more accurate than Myers-Briggs in predicting team behavior. And for some reason, they got upset with me. And the point I made is if you get people to think about themselves as different, it has utility. So you might as well use astrology because then nobody will take it seriously, but they'll use it properly. But either way, that didn't go down well. Yeah, you get 12 tribes for free, right? You do. Maybe that's all that matters, that you have 12 tribes, not what they are. I'll tell you something really scary as well, all right? If you go to core astrology, then Virgos work very well as deputies for Aries, but Taurians don't, and that's been true all my life. I'm really scared by that one. <laughs> I love it. Uh, total horseshit, but sometimes, right? You know, broken clock is right twice a day, right? People don't know their statistics. They don't know how likely coincidence is. Indeed, indeed. Well, David, Dave, I should say, uh, this has been a wonderfully informative and interesting and stimulating and fun conversation. Glad you could come on the Jim Rutt Show, and I'd love to have you back on again sometime in the future. Always happy to come. Production services and audio editing by Stanton Media Lab. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. Music.